Y'all, today we have such a special episode. We are so excited. It's so good. So these are some of our dream guests. Our heroes. They are our heroes. Uh, we have Caroline Bix and Michelle Ephraim, who are the co-authors of Shakespeare Not Stirred, Cocktails for Your Everyday Dramas, which is actually the book that inspired Alex and I to start this podcast. And if you are a longtime listener, you will definitely recognize this book because we use it a lot. They are both Shakespearean scholars, academics, wonderfully funny ladies. Best friends. Cody and I want to be them when we grow up. So stay tuned. Listen close. You're going to learn so much. Hello. Welcome to a very special episode of Shake, Shake, Shake. Y'all, we are so excited we can't even stand it. So today we have the incredible Caroline Bix and Michelle Ephraim on. Y'all, they are the reason we started this podcast. And if you're familiar with some of our cocktail suggestions, a lot of them do come from their book called Shakespeare Not Stirred, Cocktails for Your Everyday Dramas. Hey, you guys, you have to go get this book. It's it's everything I love and in between two hardcovers. We'll uh, we'll link we'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> oh, this is so exciting. All right, well, why don't y'all introduce yourself? Caroline, we'll uh, we'll just start with you. Tell us about yourself. Oh, yeah, for sure. First of all, thank you so much for having us. Um <laughs> I am Caroline Bix, and I'm currently um, the Stephen E. King Chair in Literature at the University of Maine. Um, That was a job I took about four years ago from Boston College, where I was on the English faculty. Uh, I specialize in Shakespeare, of course, um, gender, history of science. I'm also a total theater geek, and I got into Shakespeare because I used to be an actress, and that's what I really wanted to be, um, and ended up in academia. So um, I live in Blue Hill, Maine with my husband and our two kids and our rescue dog, Chuck. <laughs> Love that. Michelle, tell us about yourself. Thank you so much for having us. Um, I'm Michelle Ephraim, and I'm Associate Professor of English at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, a.k.a. WPI in Worcester, Massachusetts, <laughs> if you're from around here. And I'm the Shakespeare professor there, but I also wear a second hat as a creative writing professor. And uh, in addition to academic writing, I do a lot of memoir, uh, creative nonfiction pieces uh, as well, and I teach those subjects. I live in Boston with my four kids, my husband, and my rescue dog. (laughs) (laughs) So how did y'all meet? Y'all have the same, uh, not the same rescue dog, that would be weird, but y'all have (laughs) rescue dogs from the same, um, like, adoption play. I mean, y'all, y'all have written books together. How do y'all, how do how do y'all meet? We have, like, an academic meet cute story, I think. It is. Yes, you do. (laughs) Caroline, do you want to tell it or should I? I, I, well, you know, we, we were on each other's radar screens, for sure, because there aren't too many um, Shakespeareans who are, you know, women who have senses of humor in Boston. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although there was a nice part of us. Um, and I think I was giving a talk at a humanities center at Harvard. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Michelle came and introduced herself and we met at dinner and it was like, you know, like when you meet, it's rare that you meet those awesome friends later in life like I would say later in life now I look back we were babies and maybe we were in our 30s but um it just was like a house on fire the minute we met it was sorry sorry to use that image for sure (laughs) (laughs) that's a new topic anyway um, (laughs) 
Well, we also both believe that Hermione was cheating on her husband in The Winter's Tale, and not oh. everyone else believed that. Oh. Wait a minute, I don't remember that. I don't yes. <laughs> I don't She's throwing that. you under the bus. <laughs> we'll talk about it later, Caroline. Anyway, we'll <laughs> But also, I was very impressed because we went out to dinner after your talk with a bunch of fancy Shakespeareans, and Caroline excused herself in the middle of dinner to go uh, do karaoke with people. And <laughs> you really said that out loud, and now you're leaving. Okay. <laughs> See, I told you I was a theater geek. Anyway. Oh, my yeah. God. I love that. I'll do anything that. to be on a stage, <laughs> even if it's karaoke. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that. Y'all yeah. have such a great dynamic. Y'all should have a podcast. Yes. <laughs> You're our inspiration now, maybe. <laughs> oh my gosh. Stop it. Don't even say that. Yeah. I'm excited. So we, and then we started to, you know, have kids and, uh, you know, go through the tenure track together and get tenure together. You know, so we were having, hitting these milestones together. Um, including and adopting rescue dogs. Including adopting yeah. rescue dogs. And, uh, and then we started talking about how we wanted to have more fun with our writing um, and started to write a blog back when blogs were like, maybe a little cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we had this idea. It was going to be called Everyday Shakespeare. And we were going to write about every day. First of all, we were going to write. I think we did for like. We did because we're both both obsessive like that. Um, (laughs) And we were going to write about ways that Shakespeare intersected with our everyday lives. And it was going to be funny. And I think we did a pretty good job. I think we yeah. had like five people who read it, maybe. But it was a really oh. good archive. Their lives were changed forever. <laughs> <laughs> Ours were. Ours definitely Ours were. Definitely so were. <laughs> I love that. So um, can y'all talk a little bit about these um, amazing like character pieces y'all write about... Um, for McSweeney's internet tendency. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> we, I think we've done three for yes. McSweeney's. And, um, you know, Caroline and I just love to riff on ideas together. And, of course, it started formally with the blog that we wrote for five days a week for, I don't remember how many years, Caroline, but yeah. a number of them. Yeah. That's um, impressive. That's very impressive. Yeah. And um, we just really love to riff with each other and often we'll text each other like late at night, like, how about this pun? Ha 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 ha. You know, <laughs> um, thought of this idea, you know, what if Lady Macbeth was a mom of someone applying early decision to college and she's all crazy, just like us? Oh my God. So um, yes. and they always reflected, obviously, on things we were going through. Right, right, right. 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 Yeah. Exactly. And a lot of things just naturally reminded us of, of Shakespearean characters as we were talking about stuff that we were going through in real time. Right. Well, that's what's amazing about Shakespeare, right? It's like he's so applicable to uh, not just, you know, universal themes and everyday life, but the characters. And every time I read a play, I'm like, oh, that's me. Like, right. Oh, that's me. I am Prospero and Rosalind all at the same time. And it's like, <laughs> Absolutely. That is yeah. definitely what inspired us and what got us thinking about doing the cocktail book because we thought we have so much material and so many things we want to write about. Um, and we love drinking. So why don't we put the tea together <laughs> and think about a way to really write something bigger, um, more sustained, where we can have fun and think about um, different categories of, you know, when you think about it, drinking is one of those things that connects to a lot of different aspects of your life. You know, you can mm-hmm. drink when you're depressed, you can drink when you're celebrating, you can drink to escape family dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we thought, oh, that's a kind of interesting way to think about 
clumping is different. Celebrate <laughs> rare moments of functionality. On the other right. hand, your youth, right? Because that's yeah, stupid yeah, things. Um, yeah. And it's a tactic we, we used by many ideas. Shakespeare characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul stuff off the top of my head. Yes. <laughs> Definitely yeah. someone who uses drinking. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, this is probably an inappropriate question, and we can cut this out if you don't want this, but how many times have y'all gotten drunk together? I just want to know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Flying drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that is not quantifiable. <laughs> Love that. Well, do you have a favorite cocktail from the book? I have a lot of favorites. Caroline, what, what's your favorite? I, do. I have one. I mean, one that I, one of what, what was so fun, I mean, there were so many things that were so fun about writing this book, but I think it really scratched a lot of itches for us in that we do love punning. We love talking <laughs> about the language of Shakespeare's plays. We love the characters. We love, you know, so many things about it that the, I think the drink that I loved the most was the one that brought together all of those things um, and was a yummy drink. And so I'm going to put forward the King James absolute monarch <laughs> because that one, you know, we, because the book also takes up historical characters from Shakespeare's mm-hmm. so even though James is not, well, you could argue he's in Macbeth, sorry, the Scottish play. Um, but, you know, the idea that he's joining Scotland and England, and we thought, okay, how can we make a drink that joins Scotland and England? Um, and then we started researching, we found out that there was actually a wild tea-infused absolute vodka. So we thought, okay, well, that sounds mm-hmm. good. And then Scotch whiskey, of course, um, for the Scotland piece, um, put together a cocktail with Saint-Germain and some lemon juice, um, and it's quite delicious and brings together thematically uh, who it is that James um was so that's i would put that as one of my top yep yep i love that so much and i just michelle before or michelle before you go i just want to jump in as you're creating these cocktails were you guys doing research in terms of like taste testing all of these various alcohol as well oh yeah of course no that was a big big part of it i mean sometimes it would happen at really odd times of day like we'd drop our kids at school and then go to my kitchen at 7.30 in the morning and like try setting drinks on fire for, to see like what level of alcohol do you need to make because we wanted to do a forest fire forest flyer for the with them we thought it would involve Jägermeister but I think that one involved what which, which one was that Michelle I can't remember I can't remember there was there was yeah there was uh fire experimentation happening right, so but we would hold these tasting parties and honestly it was much harder than we thought it was going to be because you know you try a couple cocktails and then you know, you're kind of drunk and then you can't really evaluate them clearly. So we had some tasting sessions that were just, you know, we'd rule out things, but we wouldn't come to a conclusion about what would work. Yeah. Hence my, my question earlier. <laughs> I was like, we're yeah. testing all of this stuff. Yeah. And well, your kids have to think y'all are so cool. They're like, yeah, my mom drops me off at school and then she goes home and she sets <laughs> things on fire in our kitchen and she, <laughs> she taste tests cocktails for her new book. Like, that is so cool. <laughs> Well, you would think you would have (laughs) Well, not so much, but you know, they're like, Oh, are you still doing that Shakespeare drinking thing, mom? I'm like, (laughs) was there a cocktail that y'all tried for a character that you can remember that was just like, like, Oh, this is so bad. Like, Uh, does anything come to mind? I think the Hamlet one. I was just going to say, yeah. It was with Aquavit, right? We were trying to do one that was, about how he's such a curmudgeon and hates drinking. Um, so it's on brand. Yeah. And we were trying to do a non-alcoholic drink, and it was just so not good. 
Right, exactly. Um, like, yeah, he's a bummer. You know, we, we put him in in other ways in the book, but we couldn't do that signature cocktail. It yeah. just, we could not make it taste right. Yeah, he's yeah. a bummer. He's we had um, we had one non-alcoholic. Maybe we've had more than one, but our favorite non-alcoholic um, one on the show was we asked someone who was uh, breaking down Brutus. We said, "What would Brutus um, be?" And she said, "He'd be a seltzer water because he's the DD for the night." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I love that's it. Awesome. I thought that, that was great. Cool. Yeah. I love that. So, Michelle, what's your favorite cocktail or, or recipe from Shakespeare Not Stirred? Right. Well, I'm going to say two, if that's okay. <gasps> yes. Um, both, both are very punny. Um, you know, <laughs> Caroline and I do love the puns. And the, the first drink in the book is actually the one I, I is sort of a go-to cocktail for me, Richard's Gimlet. Oh, that's um, So it's yes. a play on the traditional Gimlet, but it's got that gimme in there referring to Richard III's, uh, you know, quest for vicious quest for power um mm-hmm. and it really is a traditional gimlet with habanero pepper so this is really one of our most simple cocktails mm-hmm. um and it was just a hit with people you know just adding that heat to a regular gimlet and the pun gimlet um mm-hmm. you know and and just something you know hot and spicy just everything really came together um one of the hors d'oeuvres that um i really really love is uh well the ma- the Maki Beth rolls. Oh yeah, came oh, yeah. to one of us, and we were like Maki rolls, Maki Beth rolls. <laughs> and, um, so again, it kind of, and because I like to make Maki rolls anyway, so I knew how to do it. I could play around with the ingredients. Um, we have a very very funny picture of Macbeth doctored up in front of a sushi counter uh, <laughs> that appears in the book. So right. that really was inspired. Yes. And I should say that, so one of the other great pleasures of the book was getting to work with the Folger Shakespeare Library, who were yeah. so nice and let us use all of their images and doctor mm-hmm. them up. And because they have the largest collection of visual images, I believe, in the world um, yeah. of Shakespeareana. Um, and there, we would, sometimes we would just see a picture and that would inspire the yes. recipe. Yes. I think the Maki Beth role might have been inspired by this incredible photograph from the 19th century of a of the actor playing Macbeth and he's literally he's got he looks like a sushi chef I mean he's got he's he's standing I was like well that has to be so sometimes the the recipes would be inspired by the images Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes we'd go looking for an image after we were inspired with a particular recipe so it could go a different different ways I'm glad Mm -hmm. you said that Caroline because sometimes images were so provocative or hilarious that we're like we've yeah. got to do something with this it out yeah right, right. and right. every single image in our book is from the Folger collection yeah That's that is so, so cool lovely mm-hmm. so did you guys doctor up the images yourselves did you have someone do it were you the ones who were going oh well what if we did this with this image or what if we put this here what like what was that creative process like mm-hmm. well it was actually one of my uh co-workers Jim Monaco shout out who is a genius and he it's works amazing. in the academic technology center at WPI. And he, he's a, a technical genius, but also sort of a, a artistic creative one. And he and I had worked together to do a number of things um, uh, at WPI. And so it was kind of a, it was a cool dialogue where Caroline and I would come up with concepts and he would make them happen visually. And then we'd go back and forth a lot mm-hmm. um, because all three of us are, very perfectionistic and we would just come up with different ideas until 
the end product was what we all liked. Mm-hmm. Can I give an example? Like one of my yeah. favorites of that. So uh, one of our final chapters is called Exit Pursued by a Beer. Um, <laughs> so that's where we put sort of, and that was a tough competitive category because there are so many <laughs> characters who just have like the worst life situations. But we decided that um, Antigonus, who, you know, who's in The Winter's Tale, one of Shakespeare's last plays, who has, he's connected with, I think Shakespeare's most famous um, stage direction, which is mm-hmm. Exit by a Bear. Um, and we thought, well, we have to pun on, first of all, he has to be our Hallmark guy because he gets ripped apart by a bear, you know, for, doing, <laughs> for saving a baby. I mean, it's just it's a terrible story. Um, and we thought, well, and it's actually hard to find images of, of that scene. Um, obviously, he's being ripped apart, but um, it's hard to find images of him being chased by the bear. But we found one. And we thought, how are we going to make the bear into a beer? <laughs> it's going to be a beer bottle. Was, and I think it was Jim who came up with the idea of the barrel on the bear's back. Yes, yes he did. It says beer and has a tap on it. And <laughs> the bear is like holding, it's like going, about to get Antigonus. And it's, great, it's, it's one of my favorite images. From it came out so well. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That is an excellent one. I love that one. I know I know exactly the photo you're talking about. Yeah. Well, and also another thing that was cool is that sometimes, you know, so right, we'd come at concepts from all different directions. So like with uh, Lady Macbeth's G-Spot cocktail, <laughs> I was looking for, I remember this, looking for an image on the folder, um, you know, in their, in their uh, picture holdings um, of Lady Macbeth with hands that could be what we could insert a glass into the hands, yes. make it look very mm-hmm. natural. Michelle so, was an expert at finding those hand photos. I, mean, <laughs> I discovered a secret yeah, talent. It was, it was <laughs> I had no idea I was good at finding hand photos, but I. <laughs> it's a superpower. She's holding her hand in a way that you could just slip a martini glass right in there. Boom. Right. Yeah, <laughs> y'all are so funny. Cody and I are dying over here. Um, was there a character like what character was the easiest for y'all in terms of like oh there's just so many possibilities here and was there a character that was very difficult in terms of like how do we encapsulate their essence? I know you said Hamlet's was was the the nastiest first round, but yeah, was was there one that was easier and one that was more difficult? Wow, that's such a good question. Um. I think, I mean, well, one that kept coming up, I think we had so many Lady Macbeth ones that yeah. we cut yeah. her because she just, she's one of my favorite characters in Shakespeare. I know we haven't gotten to that question yet, but I think mm-hmm. she's just so complicated. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to read her as just evil Lady Macbeth. Um, and she has so many layers to her mm-hmm. yeah. um, that I think she was one who kept coming up. We wanted to keep bringing her in. Not that mm-hmm. perhaps we as you know, also think we're a little bit like Lady Macbeth, Michelle. I don't know, but we've got, you know, she, <laughs> um, but I would say also Gertrude, we kept wanting to bring in from yeah. Hamilton because we're mm-hmm. both mothers and like working women. Yeah. You know, it's like, they're not too many characters like that in Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the middle-aged ladies, we were yeah. like, no. And right. that's also, you know, like Rosalind, um, mm-hmm. in As You Like It, that she is, cross dresses so you know we, like gender blender basically wrote itself that's right um the gender <laughs> drink yeah um and was easy to make too it was like oh yeah fruit ice you know just like all right it's kind of like a margarita or a smoothie yeah. with alcohol in it you know so that mm-hmm. was that felt very easy yeah um yeah i'm trying to think of like things that were were difficult um or were i mean i, I do feel like a lot of the characters we just 
felt immediately inspired by. Right. Um, yeah. I think that we had trouble, but we knew we wanted to include Juliet. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think for her, we were like, we know we want to put, I think that one we had trouble with, what is this drink going to be? What do we want to foreground about her? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And now I have to say, I feel a little guilty about how we ended up presenting her, even though I think it's hilarious because I just came out with this book about cognition and girlhood and how we need to take girls' brains seriously. And, they, and, and like, I look at the Juliet's emojito, which is what we ended up doing. And I'm like, oh my God, we make her so shallow. <laughs> <laughs> right, with the image of her, she's actually thinking in emojis. She is thinking in emojis. so shallow. Uh, <laughs> I love that there's a like a mo like I, I don't know I just love that you're like oh I feel bad about that now I do feel now you know, because, you know that my research is wants to foreground the ways that girls have been misunderstood and I'm like oh my god I totally marketed her in a way that is so shallow. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> then we made up for it with Ophelia. Do you want to talk about our Ophelia drink, Michelle? Oh yeah. Actually, this I was thinking about the Ophelia, the drowning Ophelia, as as one of my favorite cocktails. Um, It's really a spectacular cocktail to present because it has edible flowers on it Mm. and it's blue. So it's a blue drink uh, and it has the edible flowers and it's delicious, but it really is like, oh yes, here's that drowning scene in a drink. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's beautiful. We, we use for our long time listeners, uh, you'll remember us recommending that particular cocktail for our Ophelia episode. And it was a hit. I'm like, it was a hit with our audience. Beautiful, beautiful cocktail. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of hit on this in terms of like Lady Macbeth and Gertrude. Are those, I I know I hate it when people ask me this, we're like, what's your favorite Shakespeare play? I'm like, don't make me choose. But do you, so now we're going to ask you those questions. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite character in the canon? I I do for sure. And actually this reminds me, I'm inspired now by your question about who was hard to write about. Mm-hmm. And I think we had trouble. So my favorite, it is hard to pick one and it depends on the genre, but I would say of the comedies, I'm not a huge fan of his early comedies. I know I shouldn't say that. I mean, I appreciate them, but I'm not like, this is a safe wait. space. Yeah, fine. I, it's I, a safe I space. To go see Midsummer Night's Dream again. Um, although it's <laughs> amazing production of it. I have to say where that was very dark. Um, so I, I tend more toward the dark. So I really like All's Well That Ends Well. Um, mm. To me, it feels like the most modern of his plays. I think that Helen, for your listeners who might not know, it's not a particularly widely read play, although it's been performed mm-hmm. more recently. Um, Helen is his, um, I think, most complicated protagonist, like girl mm-hmm. protagonist, in that yeah. she is an orphan. She's desperately in love with Bertram, who's much above her in social class, but she's grown up around him because her father was the court physician. Um, Her father's just died and left her all of his medical recipes. Um, And she she pursues Bertram all the way to the court of the king of France, Mm -hmm. Um, heals the king of France of his fistula using her father's recipe, and in exchange gets to pick whoever she wants to marry. She picks Bertram, who immediately ditches her. Like the king makes Mm -hmm. her marry, makes him marry her. Um, and then she spends the rest of the play kind of tracking him down, essentially <laughs> figuring out how, because he leaves with a letter saying, and you can cut all this if you want to. No, 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 no. This, this is great. This is but, uh, this. It's such a fascinating plot line to me. Um, he, he leaves her, he ditches her after he's forced to marry her. Um, and leaves her a letter saying, well, until you get the ring off my finger and are pregnant by me, I'm never going to call you my wife. So mm-hmm. he leaves her in kind of an impossible spot. Um, 
but she does figure out how to get pregnant by him by tricking him by doing a bed trick and it's the first staged bed trick on the english stage where a female actually orchestrates it mm-hmm. <laughs> um and does allegedly get pregnant by him although i i argue that you can't actually tell she's pregnant in the final scene but she shows up and says hey i'm pregnant yeah. what. right uh, and i got your ring All right so she figures <laughs> a bed swap so i she's a really complicated character she makes critics and audiences very uncomfortable yeah. um but i think she really is a very modern heroine so it was hard coming up with a drink for her. We did sort of fold her into Helen of Midsummer Night's Dream, who also faces yeah. after a guy who doesn't want her um, and ends up with him in a kind of very uncomfortable situation because Demetrius is still drugged at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream. I know. I've always said to my students, I'm like, yeah. clearly he knew some crazy Helena yeah. if uh, <laughs> Shakespeare to write these, right. these two characters. Right? I, yeah. I've been lucky enough to play both of them, and and I, they're oh. they're my probably my favorite um, characters to play. And she, I I love Lady Macbeth too. But so can um, I ask you, how did you do Helen in Oswald? Like, how did what were you thinking about her? I I I would do her differently now than when I did her then. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, I played up a lot on the, this feeling of family. And the sense that she never really had a family. And so mm-hmm. what it would mean to lose Bertram, that was the only way for me I could kind of yeah. justify the the intensity in which she, because right. um, he's so awful to her. Right. And yeah. she's just like, that's okay. And so it's like, you know, right. and I was like, right. well, God, we do that all the time with family members, right? right? Like there's plenty right. of people in our lives that we should be drawing boundaries with in our family. And partners. Like, I mean, we make yeah. partner decisions as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that was the only real way I could, um, and she's a healer, you know, I think there's yeah. some, she does have like um, those instincts about people and nature and the world and the cycles of the world and the earth. And she has a lot of divine feminine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like there's also, there's a knowing that she has of like, um, of like, I know, I know what's good for this man and I know what's good for me in my heart in terms of what I need. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a friend actually, I don't think she listens to this podcast, so I'm going to call her out. But um, when we were, <laughs> she, she was a big inspiration too. Cause in college, I'll make this really fast, but freshman year of college, I'm at USC. I have this friend She's like, oh my God, I just met my husband. I'm like, who? And she tells me this guy's name. And I'm like, oh, I know him. And I was like, are y'all going out on a date? And she's like, no, 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 no. He, he hasn't asked me out, but we're, we're going to get married. And I was like, okay. So all for four years of college, guys would ask her out and she would say, no, I'm waiting for him. Like would refuse to date other people. And this other guy was like, hey, I'm really not into you. And she'd be like, no, 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 just you wait. Oh my God. Fast forward now, they're married. They have five kids. What? And she what? just like, yeah, she just like knew. <laughs> she was she was like, I'm not giving up. And she just hang on. And so I, she was a big inspiration too. And I think that's like that instinct. Wow, that she is a modern day Helena. Exactly. Yeah, really exactly. Is. So she was a big inspiration. In, wow. <laughs> in a lot of ways. I love your sympathetic read of, of Helena as being yeah. very vulnerable because she doesn't have family. And there's a sort of displacement going on. Mm-hmm. And she's attached to Bertram, and Bertram can be his jerky, horrible self, which he really is to the core. Uh, mm-hmm. And she's still in it. You know, she's still mm-hmm. in it because it comes from a very deep place within her, and it's not just about him. I am remembering yeah. that one of our hors d'oeuvres, you know, Helena was very complex, as Caroline uh, was talking about, but we did do an hors d'oeuvre called Bertram's Crushed Nuts. Oh, I forgot <laughs> that. 
we felt that that was a truth right there. That was, that was easy to hold on to, so to speak. Oh, yes. oh my those God. Crushes. I mean, because he is so emasculated in the play. Oh, right. Yes. Terrible. Yes. I love that. Not like no, your yeah. mom and your wife like trapping you. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, I just feel like when there's an, a character who's that intense, yeah. there has to be some sort of like not to get all LA, but like inner <laughs> inner child wound that's happening. That's like the motivating factor for all of those things. I mean, I think she does love him. I think she has to love him. But I think there has to be a a a, a deeper and just like need to uh, to drive that infatuation that that's yeah. more than just than just him but no yeah. i agree yeah, and one thing fine. i have to say like this is a, another amazing thing about shakespeare is that as you grow and your life changes you i connect with shakespeare in different ways so over the time mm. it's taken us to write this book it's come out what i think my son has grown up from being maybe like eight to being 17 almost mm, mm-hmm. and so i now i see bertram very differently now you know because like, oh, yeah. no i mean I, like i have yeah. a little more sympathy for him because he doesn't have any power yeah, yeah yes that's he's, a very good point i know now i've said that and i'm gonna say i know he's white and he's privileged like i get it as is my son mm-hmm. um but it's you know in shakespeare's day it's really interesting to think about if you're not if you don't have any claim to your money or your position um which mm-hmm. you don't until you're 21 and he doesn't um mm-hmm. then we need to play he has no power yeah, yeah, so that's given me a little more. I still think he's not a great dude, but um, I'm seeing him a little differently. So you're talking about your son or Bertram right now, I'm Karen. Talking about Bertram, <laughs> of course. My son, <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely young man. I'm just saying, <laughs> <laughs> throwing Jonah under the bus. No. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. No, it's a very good point. So, Michelle, do you have a favorite Shakespearean character? You know, I was thinking about this as Caroline was talking, and you know, it's that's of course so hard to answer. It depends on on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's Hermione and it's Jessica, and I guess more mm-hmm. Jessica because I have always seen myself so much in Jessica Shylock's daughter in The Merchant of Venice since the moment I read that play. It was just woo. So, um, so I really, 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 uh, I mean, Jessica makes me very uncomfortable, but, um, I, I teach that play every year in my introductory Shakespeare course. Um, interestingly, a lot of people don't teach the Merchant of Venice. And in fact, probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but that makes it worth saying that, uh, my daughter's high school, our local high school, there was some pushback from parents because they are going to stage the Merchant of Venice next year. They do a Shakespeare play every year and they do a phenomenal job. Yeah. Um, Someone contacted me about this pushback and I wrote, uh, you know, I expressed my views to someone who then, you know, put that in writing. Um, But this person felt like, you know, this play is anti-Semitic. This is not the time to have an anti-Semitic play. Not like as if there is ever a good time to have an anti-Semitic or whatever. But um, you know, it shouldn't be put on. And I, I feel very strongly that uh, that's not the case. Um, mm-hmm. I think the play, like many plays and works of literature, opens up conversations, uh, absolutely provocative, absolutely controversial, but that's what makes them interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like it wasn't giving Shakespeare enough credit yeah. in terms of what he was doing there and the questions he was exploring. So um, I, I really adore Jessica a lot. I appreciate the position that she was in uh, as being, you know, trapped by her family and wanting to be different and wanting to rebel against them. 
but ultimately having a, what I read as a deep ambivalence about her decisions as well to leave her father and convert to Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a deep ambivalence to me in that play that I'm very mm -hmm. interested in, in talking about with my students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you were saying earlier is it, it is so important. It's like the reason, like if all theater that we put on is kind of just bland and respectfully entertaining then mm -hmm. we're never going to have the conversations that need to happen because entertainment is one of the big catalysts to societal conversations about change and mm -hmm. actually making a difference and making a change in at your everyday life as a human being who saw a show that made you think and mm -hmm. you know then on a on a grander scheme the constitution or the um what am I trying to say the um institutions that need change as well. Yeah. 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 And I love too, that you said it's not giving Shakespeare enough credit because I think j just because his character is are saying something or doing something, that doesn't mean he's of course um, approving of that mm -hmm. and right. taking into consideration like the time period in which these things were written and what was happening during during that time. I personally yeah. love Merchant of Venice. I love Portia. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have, you know, different ideas around Portia and um, one of my friends, he's like, she is such a bitch. And I'm like, no, she's not. <laughs> but that's what I, I agree. That's what I like about Merchant of Venice is that it, you have to have a conversation around it. It's not just one where you're like, oh yeah, comedy of errors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I think, as Michelle had mentioned, Hermione, who's also one of my favorite characters in The Winter's Tale. And I think that's another one of those plays that raises a lot of really uncomfortable yeah. questions, mm -hmm. um, which is why I love it so much. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no one easy answer to how we're supposed to read mm -hmm. what yeah. Leontes does and yeah. how, how the ending, yeah, how we're supposed yeah. to read that reunion. And same with uh, Measure for Measure. We just mm -hmm. did a, an episode on that and, and talked at length about the ending of that of that show and how are we supposed to feel about it. And my friend Charles, um, who's been on the show as well, he he made a great point. Um, he came on to, to speak about being an artistic director, and he said, I'm always just so much more interested in his questions than his answers, Yeah, which oh, I just thought was a, a great way of thinking about it. Like, it's yeah. okay to have these questions. We don't have to have all the answers what's fun is having a bunch of different answers that all still work. Yep. You know, that can all still be justified. Definitely. I feel like when I teach measure for measure, that's the play where students are like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Sorry. Anyway. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah you, yes. You can fucking say that. That's Yay. Um, but they're like, I mean that, that last scene, you know, with the sort of the switcheroo and uh, you know, someone who, was training to be, wanted to be a nun more than anything, forced to marry someone. I mean, just the, the hypocrisy that mm. goes on in that play, mm. um, especially around women, is yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. So people are just very shocked. Students are very shocked by that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, definitely. And speaking of, you know, Measure for Measure, Winter's Tale, All's Well, Merchant, um, what are each of your favorite comedies dramas mm. and then histories if you had to pick one in each category and we know this is an awful question so we apologize <laughs> in advance <laughs> That's i mean i think the comedy piece for me again it's the darker comedies the problem mm. comedies so mm -hmm. you know and ones that have been shunted off into other categories so like winter's tale was originally a comedy mm -hmm. um 
so I definitely put that as a favorite, but I don't think that's what people think of when they think of comedies. Um, I'd have to say history for me is the Richard III play, which mm-hmm. I absolutely love, even though technically mm-hmm. it's a tragedy. It's a history. I love the story of Richard III, um, especially as, again, you know, so both my children have scoliosis, actually, and one of them quite mm-hmm. severely and had to have surgery. And so I'm really intrigued by thinking about, like, how would Richard III have been portrayed and in what ways was he demonized for his physical deformity, disability? Um, what's the truth of it? So when, like, when they found his skeleton in 2012 and yes. it actually did have a really severely curved spine, I was like, wow, he really did have scoliosis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm, he's just always been a character who, who I'm very drawn to. Um, I also just love that play because the, the women are so powerful and mm-hmm. fascinating in it. Um, and I always try to teach that play. If I only have like one semester to teach six plays, I try to pick that one because I think it defies people's ideas about what Shakespeare's doing with women. You know? mm-hmm. um, because they do, they band together, they use their speech to intercept him. Um, it's, it's a play where they're not all perfect, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. So I'd say that one for, for the histories. And for me, definitely the Scottish play my favorite mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but what about you what about you michelle um well i guess for the comedy you know this is so hard to answer these questions of course but um <laughs> uh for the comedies you know i'm gonna go back to merchant of venice love that play i have to say it's my favorite mm-hmm. um and uh and and because i have written I've, I've written a lot on on jews and women in shakespeare's england and jewish women and conversion and representations of judaism and all this stuff. So, of course, Merchant of Venice is something that, to me, um, is so rich in English history, religious history um, of all kinds. So, I, I love I love teaching it for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of of the history plays themselves, I really like the uh, Henry the Fourth plays, the parts yes. of the and I, I was just thinking about okay, why why do I like those? I mean, Falstaff is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and Falstaff always goes over well, even though Falstaff is really complicated. Um, yes. his, his language is complicated, um, you know, and so it is, it is a, a complicated, you know, the, the language is very, very, very rich. Um, and uh, it was written, you know, so it was an earlier period of history than some of Shakespeare's other plays, but written later, it was not written chronologically. Um, so it, it, it's, it's clearly a more sophisticated play in terms of its writing style than, than Richard III, I would say. Um, but I, I think one of the other things I really like about the Henry IV plays is the drama between um, King Henry IV and his son, Prince Hal, mm-hmm. the future Henry V. Um, there's so much drama uh, about a parent's expectations of a child. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that always resonates, you know, with me uh, in terms of thinking about, you know, what my parents would have wanted me to do or the way that we still care about that. Even if our parents are gone, uh, that we still think about what would they have approved of and what would have made them happy. Um, just, and I find that really resonates with students a lot as well. So I, um, it's so complex the way that's played out, um, in those plays. So I, I would say that that's my favorite history mm-hmm. uh, of Shakespeare's. And then in terms of tragedy, I have to say Hamlet, you know, mm-hmm. it gives and gives. 
And uh, I teach that class, uh, that court, that play rather, in a, a course I teach that's called Infected Shakespeare. Ooh. And I focus on um, the plague, uh, you know, health pandemics, <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> mental illness, and sexually transmitted diseases. Oh, and it used to be that only two out of the three people were like, oh, yeah, that's still a thing. And now it's like, oh, yeah, plague. Oh, yeah. Oh, plague. <laughs> um, but wow. I, I talk about Hamlet. We read Hamlet alongside uh, early modern medical documents about depression, or as it was called back in the day, melancholia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the way that Hamlet appears to be this tragedy of externals, you know, my uncle killed my dad, my mom married my uncle, you know, just like all this shit goes down. I accidentally killed my girlfriend's dad, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> but it's like so, it's so internal and kind of at its core are these existential questions that really tap into issues of, of mental health, uh, mental illness. And, you know, it, I think Hamlet goes in some really dark, uncomfortable places that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with the action going on around him. Yeah. Oh, I could just sit and listen to y'all talk about this for hours. Like, I want to be in y'all's class. I'm like, can I? I know that could be amazing. You're online? Is that what you said? No, no, no. But just you can just show up and call. Oh, oh my god! (laughs) Don't mean. Don't tell. Don't tell us that. We will come with our with our rolly suitcase to your classes. (laughs) We will be there in a second. Um, Well, clearly y'all have such an amazing like friendship and chemistry, and y'all are incredible duo. Do y'all have a favorite uh, duo or friendship in Shakespeare? Ooh, I don't know what Caroline's going to say. I don't know. I mean, you know, I was thinking about that one and it was really interesting. I was like, wow, it's hard to find a duo that I think I can get behind, you know? <laughs> the one that I will get behind is Paulina and Hermione. Yeah. Um, because they like, I mean, they just pull one over on the whole play. <laughs> like, yeah. they're, like they're messing with the audience, but they're also messing with Leontes, but they're also yeah. deeply about standing up for each other well I don't know about Hermione standing up for Paulina but I do I I just love Paulina and the way that she makes it possible for the play to have another secret life Mm -hmm. um it's such a surprise um and that she stands up for Hermione from the start um Mm -hmm. my first work well my, my first sort of deep research was about midwives during Shakespeare's day and childbirth culture um so I looked at someone like Paulina who's called a midwife and thought about what was her role as Hermione's advocate. She calls herself, I'll be the advocate to the loudest, you know. So I got, I was very mm-hmm. interested in thinking about the way midwives weren't just delivering women's babies, which they were, and they were doing it very well, um, but they also were testifying to truths about women that um, men didn't have access to. Um, mm-hmm. So I love Paulina as a figure, as a kind of midwife figure, in that she sticks with her tends to her postpartum. I mean, the way that Hermione's body is treated postpartum is just so mm-hmm. horrible, obviously, by, yeah. by Leontes, um, that she tends to her for so long, so secretly. Yeah. And then together they orchestrate this phenomenal ending. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think they're my favorite duo. I'm yeah. going to go with it for now. That's such a good answer. I like They hadn't yeah. even popped into my head, yeah. but mm-hmm. yeah, totally. Michelle, how about you? Well, I just want to add on to that, that um, this is making me think about the most phenomenal production of The Winter's Tale I saw um, at the American Repertory Theater here in Cambridge um, a long time ago, like 20 years ago. Um, And I 
cried so hard at the ending, I almost threw up. Um, no. was, <laughs> and I was the only one, I think, crying that hysterically. My husband was super embarrassed. Anyway, um, so I was thinking about this friendship thing. I, I totally agree with Caroline. There's a lot of friendships, friendships, quote unquote, that you're like, ooh, you know, <laughs> that don't look like my friendships, please. But, um, I, I have to say, one thing I'm always intrigued about with Midsummer Night's Dream is that, you know, you've got these friends, you know, uh, Hermione, um, sorry, Hermione, Hermione and Helena, uh, who have been mm-hmm. friends since childhood, and then they fall out over a guy. And it's painful and it's relatable, sadly, to so many of us uh, mm-hmm. at horrible adolescent points in our lives where we might have had a falling out or some tension with a friend because of some loser that one mm-hmm. of us liked, you know, whatever. And, but one of the things that I thought about that was interesting is that they have this, you know, they cat, they have a cat fight or almost cat fight in, in the play. But then at the end, when they've woken up after being drugged and, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, look, actually, sorry, not being drugged, but they, they have not been drugged mm-hmm. and, um, or they've been drugged to go to sleep, but they still have their perspective on things. Right. And they are making comments about what's going on around them in sort of a state of disbelief. But I always like to think of them at that moment as kind of seeing clearly too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, when Helena says something like, you know, Demetrius, he's uh, my own and not my own, like a jewel I've found basically. Um, you know, she's like, something's up here. I like to think, you know, what would, what is their relationship like after this? Like maybe they have a reconciliation. They're like, Oh my God, can you even believe we did that? What the hell? And like, as many of us have, you know, reconciled with friends after a fight, you sometimes become even closer as a result of it. So I think about that a lot. What would their next act be together? That's a very optimistic reading of them. (laughs) I just find it very, I, so I, I do tend to teach Midsummer Night's Dream too, because I think it's just an important, foundational play to talk about mm-hmm. it's early in his career there's so many themes he's setting up that he's going to be developing over the course of his career but I have so much trouble with the, that friendship it's so sad to me um and but I like your reading Michelle I mean maybe we can imagine that they're going to go because it, it's so strange in that play to me that the that the boy I call them boys because they are they are boys mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they're drugged but the girls yeah. are not and the girls never change course they know exactly what they want and they're, I know they're in the forest. They probably aren't remembering everything, but it still seems really odd to me that they know what they're doing when they get in that cat fight. <laughs> like they're so aware of what's happening. Well, they do. Uh, and that's why I do think it's different at the end though. It's sort of, you know, they were left with them at the end sort of dazed and, you know, and just at things and with, yeah, just have some insight. Each other, you know, that would be great. But that's a cool thing. So one of the ways... So whenever I teach Shakespeare, I, I do this um, assignment. It's like half the semester where the students work in groups and I ask them to develop offstage scenes um, that, you know, things that Shakespeare references, but we don't see or mm-hmm. scenes that they're imagining. Um, and then they work together to develop an interpretation. And this is, I'm thinking about the conversation earlier in the podcast, we were talking about 
difficult moments in the plays that are on stage, but there are ways you can maybe think about things that happen after the life of the play Mm -hmm. um, or are spaces that are opened up through the silences that you can fill in. So, you know, some students might want to imagine what Hermione and Pauline are doing for 16 years. And I've had some hilarious Mm -hmm. interpretations of that. (laughs) It's kind of like a little bit of a, like, she's, she's, she's trapped Hermione in her little chapel to just to do like paint and sips because she's so bored. (laughs) Really interesting. I, I, that's what I love about Shakespeare. He opens up these spaces where you can own it and you can come up with an interpretation. You can come up with a scene that would change the way you would see a relationship. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he would celebrate that. I don't think he had one way he wanted you to be seeing a relationship yeah, yeah. play or yeah, a problem. I totally agree. Um, and that you as a student or someone who's not a Shakespearean, you know, can come in and own it and, and do something with it that's really awesome and creative. Yeah, I think we talk a lot on the podcast about how Shakespeare so brilliantly just captured the human condition that any any human on the planet can step into any role in Shakespeare and it it will hold whatever they bring to that part. Absolutely. Which I think is just so cool. On a quick side note, um, I just, I looked up the Winter's Tale ART production because actually my grad school program was, I did the Harvard ART program for MFA and acting. And, um, and and I wasn't there when they, when they did Winter's Tale, it was in 2000, but going through their cast list, I was like, oh, that's my teacher. That was my teacher. She was my teacher. He was my teacher. Oh, that's so cool. And it's like, I mean, what an incredible cast and creative team. So I can only imagine that it was a beautiful beautiful production it was it was remarkable truly yeah um go ahead so when you know all of us being ladies of the bard what was it that sparked each of your um interest in Shakespeare and deciding to get specific and kind of double down on on studying his work over anything else in the English literature canon well, I, I've literally just finished a book manuscript about this that's with my my agent right now, so fingers crossed. <laughs> um, Congrats! Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's forthcoming, hopefully. Um, but I mean, for me, you know, I was a real late, late bloomer uh, with Shakespeare, and although I've always loved to read, and I was an English major in college as well as a history major. Um, I always loved literature, but I really didn't get into Shakespeare until graduate school. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of reasons for that, but it was it was definitely a thing that I was very late to Shakespeare. And I felt very intimidated by Shakespeare, I think, throughout my life, um, partially because you know, I'm first-generation American. My parents weren't traditionally well-read. Um, my mother uh, had negative associations with English people. <laughs> I mean, to put it broadly, uh, so I, I kind of thought, you know, I don't know. I just thought like, you know, Shakespeare's super snobby and he's probably really hard to understand. And, and then it just became more stressful because, you know, as I went to graduate school and didn't know any Shakespeare, um, it became, you know, a stressful thing, but I think I, I got into Shakespeare for, for a number of reasons. Um, and I, I was incredibly surprised at how familiar he seemed to me when I started to. Mm. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's great. 
I think I had a slightly different um, history with Shakespeare in that I went to a school, like an all girls school, and we read lots of Shakespeare starting in like sixth grade. Um, but the play that really hooked me in high school, and I had also, I had amazing teachers, I have to say, like total kudos, like a teacher, a high school teacher can either ruin Shakespeare or make you love it. Yes, <laughs> I completely I agree. Appreciate. And I had an incredible high school English teacher and um, we were reading King Lear. And I should have said that was one of my favorites. It certainly is. I just find it's really complicated. It's just a hard play. Um, mm-hmm. But I, uh, I totally saw myself in Cordelia and in her relationship with her father. Um, like it's a great play to introduce teenage girls to. Like King Lear. I mean, my dad's a lovely guy. I, I'm very fortunate to have a good relationship with him, but in high school, not so much. And um, so I really got into that relationship through the characters, but also the language. I mean, I think I just, the, the teacher was so good at showing how gorgeous the language was um, and that this is poetry. Um, and I was just hooked. And then because I was a theater geek, you know, I got to do a lot of Shakespeare plays in college and um, got to play. Like, it was so funny. I played the nurse when I was like 18. Oh, <laughs> the nurse is yeah. so great. Like, I didn't I know that. anything about what she'd been through. I was like, I can't believe I'm playing the Anyway. Um, <laughs> but there was, was this awesome production in a basement of a dorm and it just felt like, oh, oh cool. Yes. can do anything. Theater can happen yeah. anywhere and it can be yeah. magic, you know? So yeah. for me, I think it was the magic of the actual performance um that also just hooked me i love that speaking really quickly of like shakespeare being performed anywhere i mean i I know cody and i both love to be like did you hear about that production that took place there and they said it here you know all the amazing things that you can do to can do with them but um a few years ago i got to do lady macbeth in burnham wood oh it was so amazing yeah we did it like in front of the tree and there was just this moment where about to do the demon speech where i was like how am i here (laughs) like fully just like stepped outside of my body for a moment and i mean that's what's again it's so great about about his work is you can it's so fluid and yet so structured. Like there's still such a beautiful structure to it that you yeah. can place it yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Um, and it, and it holds. Yeah. I mean, some, some better than others. I've certainly seen ones on the moon where it's like, right. I don't know if Romeo and Juliet can work on the moon, right. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate the effort. But people do it. <laughs> I'm remembering now a vampire theme production of Midsummer Night's Dream that I saw. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Oh I love my it. God. But yes. Caroline, you know what? You before we leave the 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 commentary about well, the thread about your school, you have to tell them about the fundraiser your school had with the merchant. Oh, no, it I don't it'll no, it's gonna look badly on my school. <laughs> All right. Never mind then. <laughs> You'll have you can you can tell us when we Let's stop recording. It was the nineteen eighties and people weren't particularly um aware about <laughs> Oh my god. Oh no. We'll, just, we'll leave it at that. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> oh my god. So moving into your specific studies surrounding Shakespeare, I know we've kind of touched on religion or religious conversion and midwifery and gender. Like what if you had to choose just one topic to research for the rest of your life in relation to Shakespeare, wow. what would it be? Oh my gosh. Whoa. <laughs> not to throw that on you no pressure uh i mean i think it's tough because when you're just in the middle or have just finished a project that's kind of all 
you're thinking I mean that's how I am so yeah. just my book just came out like two weeks ago and I've been working <laughs> on it for 10 years I mean like this has been wow. congratulations I mean, it was like yes. so epically it took me so long um but I'm I'm so excited that it's out um and it's called cognition and girlhood in Shakespeare's world and it's about rethinking female adolescence and all the teenage girls that are not just in Shakespeare plays, but are everywhere in texts from the time period. Um, mm. So it's something that I've really got, I feel very passionately about because it mm. is a way for me to think through things I care about as a feminist and as a female moving through the world or female identified mm. person moving through the world. Um, and thinking about some of my favorite Shakespeare characters and the way they've been passed on in ways that I think are not, I mean, obviously, there's artistic license. You can take a character. That's the thing about Shakespeare. You can take a character and do whatever you want with them. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying you shouldn't do that. But I became increasingly upset, angry about the fact that these amazing teenage girl characters from Shakespeare's plays were being flattened and yeah. used yeah. in ways that I really don't think Shakespeare and his audiences were thinking about these girls. So mm -hmm. I really think they were they were gifting girls with particular cognitive abilities during Shakespeare's mm. day. Um, and so part of my passion was just sort of showing it, <laughs> just finding as much as I could in medical texts and in prayers and in autobiographical fragments and, you know, everything in plays um, to, to show that. So right now that's all I can think about. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if I'll keep writing about that. Um, although I have a fantasy, I would like to actually think about writing it more for a popular audience because I think academic books, you know, I love, it came out with Cambridge University Press. It's a great academic press, obviously. Um, but those books are very expensive. You know, it's not going to mm. reach a wide audience. Um, so the next thing I write, I really would like to write something that's more popular um, mm -hmm. and oriented to a larger audience because I care so much about these ideas. So whatever I'll do, it'll be about gender. Um, yeah. that's, that's definitely been my path. In, in I love that school. because I, so I, every year when, when I teach Shakespeare, it's in performance of it. So, you know, I'm not nearly as cool as y'all with like your oh, class of STDs and stuff, but <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> but we have, I always have students who come in and do, you know, Phoebe or they do the jailer's daughter and mm -hmm. um, they're such fun, like mm -hmm. complex, mm -hmm. you know, adolescent gals. And yeah. um, you know, my, my main notes are always like, they're not stupid. Like you no. can't play these girls as being like ditzy texting TikTok girls not that right. there's anything to do about tiktok right. but um right. you know i think that shakespeare gives them a lot more license and um and, and, yeah the jailer's you know. daughter is a great example right because mm -hmm. she is she's also lower class right so mm -hmm. it's so important to think about these girls through an intersectional lens and think about okay well yeah. okay it, why does it seem to be the lower class girls who are the ones who are like going crazy in a way that's not just ophelia going crazy right but what is, if you pay attention to what they're saying and what they're doing, they're doing incredible things. Like the jailer's daughter is, she's evoking so many of the past heroines that he's written. And mm -hmm. I really think reviving them, you know, so connecting mm -hmm. yeah. to Simona, connecting to Ophelia, but allowing them to have a second life um, mm -hmm. through a character like the jailer's daughter. Um, even as she's the one who's going to have to be tricked into sleeping with someone, um, right. cure her yeah. of her green sickness or, you know, um, which he would never do to a character who wasn't 
lower class. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so you exactly. always have to be, that's the fine line, right? You always have to be attending to the ways that Shakespeare is definitely of his time, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. He's using characters in different ways that he wouldn't use upper class female characters in certain right. ways. But that doesn't mean he wasn't thinking, I think, in complex ways about all of these girls. Right, right. Oh, I love that. I love that. What about you, Michelle? You know, just it's listening to Caroline talk. I'm like, wow, Caroline and I are going to be together forever. (laughs) (laughs) We would love the same things. Yeah. yeah, So my interest in gender in Shakespeare just goes on and on and on and on. And, you know, I I just finished, knock on wood, um, a book project um, that is that is meant to be you know, for, for a wider audience, um, as a trade book. And it, you know, I've really been in a deep dive for years working on this of making connections between Shakespeare's texts and my own life. Um, and sort of using Shakespeare as as a portal to go through, um, to explore in a memoir way, um, some very intense themes about family and, and grief and relationships. Um, so I've been really in a deep dive about Shakespeare speaking to, um, you know, our, our modern selves and the traumas that, that we go through um, in life and also the triumphs and wonderful things all around. But um, so I've been in a deep dive with that. But I, I, I think, you know, w- one of the things I've been thinking about a lot um, in terms of gender and Shakespeare, because I really I, I always come back to that uh, with I'm talking about myself as a daughter and looking at daughters in Shakespeare, um, looking at myself in romantic relationships and seeing all these disastrous things happening in Shakespeare and like, oh my God, I so did that. Oh, that is so me, 1985. Um, I won't name any names. But anyway, uh, so um, I've I've been thinking a lot about motherhood and and Shakespeare. And I I mentioned, you know, getting hysterical uh, at that, production of The Winter's Tale done by the American Repertory Theater. And I, I happened to be pregnant with my first child at that mm-hmm. time. So I'm sure I was hormonally whack, but um, but it was the first time, I have to say, watching that play was the first time I really thought about motherhood deeply because mm-hmm. of what happened to Hermione in that play and because mm-hmm. of what she went through. And it really overwhelmed me. You know, it was sort of like before that, it was like baby gap you know, birth plan. <laughs> and then it was like, <laughs> Sorry. Then, you know, just sort of like, oh my God, what am I signing myself up for right now? You know? Yeah. And um, so I do think about motherhood a, a lot and I'm, I'm endlessly, endlessly interested in Shakespeare's representations of motherhood in, in all its forms, including in Lady Macbeth's experience mm-hmm. where we don't see an actual child, but she talks about nursing a child uh, in ways that are very provocative. So to me, that that could be endlessly interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I just wanted to give another shout. First of all, Michelle's book is going to be absolutely amazing. And Aww. I can't wait yeah. to it's been amazing watching it evolve. And it's been, I can't wait to, to read it in its, when it's actually out and it will be. Um, but I was just going to say another character from Macbeth that speaks to the motherhood thing. Lady Macduff is probably one of my favorite. Yeah. I mean, she's only in one scene, but it's so funny. My students, I mean, over the years, I've become much more like 
screw it. I'm just going to say what I think. And I don't care if they <laughs> agree with me. Like, this is the truth, you know? Like, I don't know. Um, and I'm like, Lady Macduff is the moral center of this play. She's only in one scene. But I like, I'm, <laughs> basically, I'm like, obsessed with Lady Macduff's view of parenthood. And I, mm. I, I love when she talks about, you know, she's being challenged. Like, what do you mean? Why are you dishing out, you know, saying bad things about your husband for leaving you? And she's like, look, you know, the, the tiny wren, now I'm sure I'm going to misquote this because I <laughs> that is the most important thing. Uh, uh, but she's like, you know, the tiny wren will fight the screech owl to protect her children, her babies. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing, it's like he should be sticking around too. Right? He wants yeah. the natural touch. And I think she, this is where Shakespeare really brings, I think, I think Shakespeare was a feminist. I'm going to say mm-hmm. it. This was like a I question think- that was asked me on my like, oral exam in grad school but I do believe that he really saw that men and women both have things they need to bring to the table that aren't mm-hmm. gendered yeah, like mm-hmm. the, the natural touch of parenthood I really believe that that scene is about that um mm-hmm. and that Macduff is like it she's not like oh he needs to protect us it's more like we both need to be here like where yeah. where is he right right um, and I and that following scene with Malcolm when he realized when he finds out his family is dead is the oh. most gut-wrenching crushing crushing scene and oh, where he's realizing like oh my god I I did leave my children like I left them mm-hmm. like, he gets it he gets how he should have been there but again not like some manly I knew so when he says I need to feel this feel it like, like a, a I need man. to feel it like a man this is like yeah. most, that's my favorite oh, I'm getting chills like talking about that scene yeah. um that's why my students think I'm crazy now I'm like this is but I really feel that like I really feel like what he Shakespeare's getting diving deep into what it is to feel something as a human yeah. And I think he's totally breaking down the gender binaries in that play. Even though I acknowledge that that play, I think that's why it's my favorite play, but I think of the tragedies, even as I acknowledge that that play is really problematic in its presentation of gender um, and motherhood in particular, um, I do think Lady Macduff redeems it. Yeah. yeah. That's my oh. pitch. I love it. I love it. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking, a, a, you know, a good interview question would be, what is the moment where you thought your students thought you were crazy. That's a great question. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to ask it. What is the moment where your students thought that you were crazy? <laughs> well, I, I was on and on about how Lady Mac- Macbeth had a child. Yeah. And uh, yeah. what did she do with the child? Yeah. And, you know, I was talking about all, you know, infanticide and all this stuff, but I, you know, it was, as Caroline saying, I'm like, I'm just sticking with what I believe. I'm like, she definitely had a child. <laughs> yes, yes, she yes. did. Like yes. a question um, <laughs> that she had a child. Right. So Absolutely. I just went with that. It's a, for sure. The question is what happened to that child. Yeah. Um, and I think I just went on talking about infanticide for so long. I might've been pregnant. I think they thought they were like, hello, who do I call? Campus services. Um, uh-oh. So that I probably made them incredibly uneasy, but sorry. <laughs> Hope you're well. God. I feel like every time I break down a um a monologue, my students always make fun of me because I'm like, she's having an orgasm in this. If you look at her breath pattern, like everything, like the demon speech, Juliet's gallop a pace. I'm like, look at the scansion. She's having an orgasm. Oh look at the breath. That's an orgasm. I'm like, you're braver than I am. I don't think I've ever said that, but I think that's <laughs> 
Yes. Like, are, is everyone having an orgasm? I'm like, yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. Unless, yes. unless and until I say they're not. <laughs> <laughs> they're always in a state of ecstasy. I once got a uh, evaluation saying, um, you know, it was like, anything else you'd like to add about this course? And the comment was, this professor talks about sex all the time. She thinks everything, <laughs> she thinks everything is related to sex. And then the next question was, would you recommend this course to a friend? And the person just wrote, absolutely, exclamation. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I cool. love that. Well, everything in Shakespeare is about sex. I mean, I totally- well, We know, we know. Yeah, yeah. we know, we know the truth. That's why we like him. Preaching to the, to the choir here. Right. That's <laughs> fantastic. So our, our final question before we get up into the uh, wrap-up questions, um, do you have a favorite fact or story about the Bard or one of his shows? I'll <laughs> I don't know if this counts, but you know, I'd, I'd mentioned the, uh, the course I teach, Infected Shakespeare, um, and we do Hamlet. We read Hamlet alongside stuff on depression and mental illness, uh, and we read... Romeo and Juliet alongside things written about the plague, the plague outbreaks. Um, and I always start out the, the, the first Romeo and Juliet class by saying, um, does, does anyone know how Romeo and Juliet died? And of course people will answer the question like, you know, suicide and whatever. And, um, but I'm like, no, 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 they died because of the plague. And then I explain how oh, yeah, a little yeah, yeah. detail that people forget is that yes. Romeo does not get the letter saying that Juliet's mm -hmm. not dead. She just had a potion that makes her look dead. And they're going to, it's part of this, you know, Friar Lawrence's scheme. He doesn't get that letter uh, because Friar John, because he's a dumbass, invites some other friar to go with him. He's visiting sick people in plague houses. And mm -hmm. so uh, the people who are in charge of policing the situation don't let them travel out of Verona uh, mm -hmm. because they're potentially infected because they've been with, you know, he has been by proxy with people who are infected with the plague. And then it's sort of like, oh yeah, by the way, the plague is in Verona. Like in addition to like, <laughs> yeah. there's also Just the plague. Side note. But anyway, yeah, back to, back to Romeo's feelings. Um, but <laughs> so, I'm like, yeah, you know what? They're dead because of the plague. That's why. Yeah. So I like doing yeah. that because it's sort of, you know, and then people are like, oh my God. <laughs> That's oh great. God. I love that. Oh my God. I gosh. love that. Wow. Well, I have a couple things that are like coming into my head right now, partially because I'm getting ready to teach a, a grad course on early modern drama. And so I was like, you know what? I want to shake it up. I want to, what's out there? What are people working on? What's so exciting right now is there's so many people. There's so much available now online, so many mm. people doing exciting projects and making it available. Mm. Um, so I was just researching. I was like, God, you know, I, I kind of know about bear, bear baiting, but I don't really. And I know it's an important form of early modern um, entertainment. And there's this incredible group at, um, I'm going to get it wrong, but I think it's out of, I'm not even going to say because I'm going to get it wrong, but it's <laughs> it's like if you just search bear baiting, they're doing a whole project. They've got an anthropologist, they've got um, someone in genetics, they've got a literary scholar, and they're really working hard to discover like the bear bones around the bear. You know, <laughs> what can we learn about the dogs and what color their coats were and how can that help us understand why- That is super it? cool. So That's cool. Really I'm cool. so sorry, I can't find the link right now, but um, I can send <laughs> it to you. 
Um, and, really and I'm like, this is incredible. Like here are three academics who are doing, this is so, makes it so relevant, right? So yeah. like why, cause I'd never, yes, I'm always aware they're bear things. Like we were talking about exit pursued by a bear, you know, mm. but I never really thought about, well, what are early moderns actually thinking about a bear when they, they see that? Like what? Mm. <laughs> um, so I'm just intrigued. I'm just so excited about all of the new research coming out and the, the intersections between different fields and that people are working really more comfortably together now um, yeah. to produce really exciting scholarship. I would say like a fact I like to call attention to with my students when I teach Hamlet, because obviously I do a big riff on Ophelia and why we should pay a lot more attention to what she's saying and not just yes. crazy, you know, is that she's actually the first one she's to notice that Claudius good. has reacted to the play, to the mousetrap. She's mm-hmm. the one who says the king is rising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use that as an example of we've gotten so used to thinking about Horatio as the big hero, you know, Horatio is the one who's, you know, helping Hamlet. Um, I'm like, you know what? She actually in the play says <laughs> the king rises, mm-hmm. <laughs> but nobody remembers that or recognizes it. Um, yeah, and it's just yeah. not crazy. She's just observed. She's very mm-hmm. observant, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she yeah, is yeah. the play's observer. Um, yeah. But okay. we forget about that because we're all like, oh, she's so cuckoo and she drowns herself. Um, so anyway, that's I love that. Yeah. So into our final little round of wrap up questions, what are each of your go to drinks when you (laughs) go to the theater? The theater. (laughs) Oh, I want to go to the theater. It's been so long. (laughs) Oh, I know. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I did just see an outdoor Midsummer Night's Dream, which actually was amazing. Oh, Um, good. Because they made the Indian boy a baby and had Titania carrying it with her constantly so that when, oh, wow. so that when Oberon takes it, it's so horrible. It's like, oh, oh my God, Michelle, you would have loved this. Yeah, it's all about like, you just took my baby. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you would definitely cry. Um, <laughs> from that movie in Australia, the dingo took my baby. I just, yeah, 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 yeah. totally. You just um, took my baby. Oh my god! But I was gonna just say, I actually don't like to drink when I go see plays. Okay, because yeah. I like to be clear-headed, and I don't want to have to get up and go to the bathroom. I feel <laughs> that. I do feel <laughs> that. That was such a middle-aged lady response. <laughs> that was not the case since my twenties. <laughs> Well then, do you have a favorite cocktail, go-to cocktail in general, where you're like, I'm always gonna, I'm always gonna order the blank. I'm always, I'm a, I'm a gimlet girl, so like, yeah, right. really like I love the gimlet from the from the book. That's yeah. the other one I drink the most. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have to say too, gimlets. Um, that that is my my go-to drink. Um, or really martinis too. I'm interested in interesting martinis of different kinds. Um, yeah. And I'm also, I'm interested in trying new cocktails that I, I'm always, I, now that, you know, after Caroline and I went through this and mm-hmm. we're very humbled uh, mm-hmm. by the process of making cocktails and we, we got lots of advice from many people. I would often, if I was at a bar, I'd be like, excuse me, excuse me, do you know, um, <laughs> what would you, you know, what advice from mixo- actual mixologists. So I'm yeah. always very intrigued by new combinations that people are teaching me about. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Which I just tell one final anecdote. Like one of my favorite memories of writing this book with you, Michelle, was when we would go to, I have since moved from Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. And one of the things I do miss is like all the incredible liquor stores and bars. (laughs) Because I now live in rural Maine. And there are some great things here. But um, 
I we used to go to the wine shop in Chestnut Hills. We want to give a shout out to them. And sometimes we'd be like, "Do you have wormwood bitters?" Like, oh, <laughs> like we, yeah. we want to try doing. We knew we wanted to do the nurse's slippery wormwood nipple, yeah. Um, but we didn't know how to find wormwood bitters, and they ordered it for us, which was amazing. Because oh, I think wow. it was isn't wasn't it illegal at that point? I believe it was, and it was someplace in the Berkshires. And I'm gonna just yeah. just extend that shout out. This is Winestone in Chestnut Hill, and the Absolutely. owner is Patrick, and it is the best <laughs> wine store on earth. Yeah. And um, he did get us uh, that those special bitters, um, yeah. which we thought there was no way, but he got them for us. And he taught us how to make a slippery nipple. That's right. Oh, I love that. That is That's so right. cool. And we, we used that cocktail for our nurse episode. Right. right. Well, it's so did you, were you able to find wormwood bitters? No, we no. weren't. Right. We we're tried not. very hard. Yeah. We can hook you up next time. You know, <laughs> I, still yes. have a yes. I still have them in my fridge. I mean, like I have such oh, an incredible God. collection of alcohol. That's great. Love that. And and speaking of the the nurse episode, really quickly, um, one of the um our actors on that show, Terry, she is also a karaoke fiend. Uh, she actually has a company called Terryoke, oh where a pun as her. well as karaoke. We must find yes. her. Yes. <laughs> I know she's she's fantastic. <laughs> so, do y'all have a favorite Shakespeare resource y'all would like to shout out? Oh my God, that's such a great question. I love that we've already mentioned the Folger Shakespeare Library, but I go into like crazy deep dives on their site um, mm-hmm. and their collection of, of visual images is you can access it for free online and you can search for images. So I've, I'm always getting my students to look for stuff um, and, you know, we analyze um, different images of, you know, the Victorians loved to treat Shakespeare characters like they were real people and um, yeah. them constantly. And so we talk about artistic representations uh, of Shakespeare's characters and um, there's just a lot of great stuff in there. You know, it's, it's a, it's a site that's so scholarly, but also so accessible. Mm-hmm. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was, I've just found the site that I was talking about. Um, it's called before Shakespeare um, and it's a great website and it's all about the beginnings of London commercial theater. So oh, they're sort cool. of saying, we, we tend to focus just on Shakespeare, but let's talk about before Shakespeare. Obviously. Yeah. Um, and so the project they're working on is called box office bears, um, oh, which cool. is their research project on animal baiting. Um, and that's just like, I, that was one of the most exciting online resources I found recently, but there are so many wonderful sites. Um, there's, there's read, which is the, the site that, um, has been tracking early Shakespeare, early performances um, in non-traditional venues um, in the 16th century. So if you want to find out about performances that weren't happening at the Globe, um, mm. they've been collecting and documenting that for, I think, like 20 years. Um, oh, and that's, that's a so great cool. source. Um, if you're interested in particular female authors, that's where a lot of the exciting work is being done, um, mm. is online. Mm-hmm. So like the Margaret Cavendish Project, the Hester Poulter Project, um, people who are, because unfortunately, publishers aren't necessarily going to publish books about um, these women, um, but they were doing incredible work during Shakespeare's day. Um, And so a lot of it's happening digitally. Um, I also love the uh, Race Before Race, which is a wonderful um, resource. They do um, annual conferences, but they record all of their um, talks. Um, race before race, really important for thinking about diversifying what we think of when we think of writers during Shakespeare's day. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we um, love that. Oh, so do you know that site? Well, so much of what we we're trying to do on the podcast is just like Shakespeare's always seen as so stuffy and yeah. white and um, right. elite, elite, and wealthy. Right. Yeah, and yeah. we're trying, you know, that's not what it was, you know, intended for. Right. Um, yeah. Well, race before so. race is great because it's calling attention, first of all, to the racism and the scholarship around Shakespeare, or the history of that, um, yeah. what's been left out, who are the writers we're not talking about. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, it just takes a much more global approach, and I found that to be a really exciting and important site as well. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And so finally, our last question for today, if Billy Shakes was a cocktail, <laughs> what cocktail would he be? Oh, oh goodness. Wow. I should have thought ahead on this one. I don't have like a good pun. I was thinking it has to be something where there's secrets, yeah, and you're not going to mm -hmm. find out everything about it. So I think it's right, right, right. now that you don't know what's in it necessarily. You're not going to be able to find out, but it's going to taste awesome. Mm -hmm. Right, right, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, Caroline and I will now will be um, punning on this later. <laughs> like, oh, why didn't we do that? We do that? <laughs> we're now mistaken all night. Thank you. Uh, maybe like a mistaken identity too. Like it's in a martini glass, but it's actually something else. Like right. it's disguised as something, but then you taste it and you're like, that's not mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I was just going to say like a shot of something, but you know, these are much more yes. ideas. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, or something followed by something else. I don't know. He'd be like a, yeah. So, you know, to, to your points, it's like, he'd be some kind of complex combination, not entirely one a uh, solitary thing, but a series of flight of wine in some way. I don't know. Ooh. Oh, that's what he'd be. He'd be a tasting menu. Oh, oh I love I that. Love that. that. It would be like a traveling tasting menu. So you'd go to different, but yeah. Nice. I love that. Yeah. He'd oh be a bar crawl. Let's just start a bar, y'all. Let's just create our own bar. I know. And live there forever <laughs> together. <laughs> together forever. It would be, of course, a barred crawl. Oh, oh, yes. Well, Cody and I are going to make shirts, and when we do, y'all will absolutely get some. It's going to say "Ladies Behind the Bar," and then in parentheses, "Duh." <laughs> our also like bar, our duh. lifetime goal is to create a liquor line designed after each of the spirits in Shakespeare's work. So it's a wow, line. that is a great idea. It's a lofty goal. And but. we want to have a Patreon that's called Shakespeare's. Like, the, like our peers. This is oh, like all the stuff that oh we God. just think we about. We also appreciate puns <laughs> in we case really, you can't we tell. We really are like, like it's, we're, yeah. Just <laughs> <laughs> reincarnated. <laughs> oh my god that is the biggest compliment we, we could ever seen. we just have to get back we all have to get together at some point in person we will i have faith in us <laughs> oh my gosh thank yes. you guys so much thank for you for having to us do this. it was amazing thank you so much dream thank y'all <laughs> Thanks so much for having a drink with us. This podcast was edited by Jojo from the podcast On That Note Mortals. Music written by Stephanie McGarrett. Graphics by Momo from Pitchfork Disaster. For more information, check out our website at shakepodcast.com. Or on Instagram at shakepod. Let's grab another drink soon. Yes, please. And if you've enjoyed listening to Shake, 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 we would really appreciate it if you head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love you forever.